um, you gotta stop bopping that mic. You're driving me nuts. <laughs> Amateur hour. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. This is a show about profiling common and inexpensive records waiting to be rediscovered. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm joined today by part-time mortuary security guard, Peter Cook. Hello. <laughs> and uh, runner-up at the National Mayonnaise Eating Competition, Jeremy Ruggles. That's me. <laughs> Jeremy's made the selection of the record we're talking about today, so I'm going to let him introduce it. We are talking about a record... You might find it in Grandma's basement. Mm-hmm. You might find it um, at the local home improvement uh, restore where they yeah. have a box of records and they write 50 cents in Sharpie on the outside. You're not supposed to tell people about that. That's where I find the good stuff. That's, <laughs> I did find a couple good ones. We'll uh, edit that out. <laughs> yeah, they oh, can't no. know the secrets. Yeah, well, yeah. All right. Uh, Los Indios Tabajadas, their breakthrough album, Maria Elena. Well, I'll start with the claim of the RCA record company. Uh, this album came out in like 63. Mm-hmm. Um, RCA liked to claim for the benefit of building a, a fantasy and an image around this music that in the long, faraway jungles of northern Brazil, (laughs) (laughs) this whole thing gets so, it's so wrecked. Um, (laughs) These Indian brothers, they find a guitar just out in the, like, jungle, like tribal Indians from 2,000 years ago, but it's actually, like, 1940-something. Basically 2,000 years ago. Yeah basically 2,000 years ago at this point. The brothers, they find a guitar. (laughs) The RCA claim is that they took it home and hid it. Well, took it to their, presumably like their teepees, like you see in a Disney movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And they hid the guitar and they waited because they were worried it might be a firearm. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) This was not on the Wikipedia page. They had a much lighter version of this. <laughs> yeah, they've they've tried to whitewash how uh, whitewashed it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 2019 washing the 1960 whitewashing. Yeah. It's meta, meta wash. Yeah. <laughs> meta white. And once the Indian brothers were assured it, it would not blow up at them, they they happened to start just like touching it and it made some like sounds and they were like wow these are beautiful sounds oh let me i just want to then they found a standard tuner (laughs) (laughs) and learned western diatonic scales and (laughs) classical standards i'm just gonna straight up read part of this the story began in the jungle of the state of ciara up in the northeastern shoulder of brazil Here an Indian tribe called the Tabajares lives well isolated from the world of the white man. While peaceful enough... Okay, let me start. (laughs) With a very minimal amount of research, the Tabajares, they were a 
group of what were called the Topi tribes in Brazil. This claim I've found is kind of debated nowadays, but they're well known for cannibalism and eating the bravest and strongest warriors to like absorb their strength, essentially, okay. is the claim. Which was a, a common theme in a lot of like exotica records of the time. It was like music of the cannibal and things like that. They wanted, you know, like middle class white people to feel like there was an element of danger in their record buying. It's hard to say if that was a made up fact because there's some scholars who believe they did do that, but they do know they were like extremely warring tribe. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the, the Tavahari in particular actually helped the French invade a nearby tribe and kill them. I believe it. Yeah, that happened here in Michigan too. So the idea that they're unfriendly toward the white man civilization is like <laughs> completely ridiculous. Um, now, wasn't it true that like the brothers weren't actually part of that tribe though? I couldn't find anything to establish whether or not they actually were. Okay. Um, because, yeah, I kind of got that vibe from the little bit of cursory research I did. Because they were under a different name in their initial recordings and then, like, changed to this, like, name and image for this record, right? Okay, let me... I'll, we'll get in... Actually, <laughs> no. Here's what we're going to do. I'll play you a little bit just so you have, like, a, a frame of reference for what I'm talking about here. Straight from the... <laughs> I don't even want to say it. It's horrible. RCA, you suck. <laughs> song correct yes it was like a top 40 single after this album was released which if you know about the time frame it was released in in the early 60s there was like a mass popularity of like hawaiian slide guitar mm -hmm. kind of music some like strange space age kind of vibes from like britain yeah there's uh, joe meek was it the telstar yeah yeah Okay, so you asked about the brothers and the name change thing. Here's RCA's take on this. One of the leaders of the Tabaharis was a tribesman by the name of Mitanga, who was the father of 30 children. One day, 20-odd years ago, Musa Peri, his number three son, and Hurundi, the next oldest boy, found a guitar. And then it gets into the ridiculous finding a guitar story but from my research what i could find is it seems like that they did have different names maybe that was their real names it's hard to tell with how much of this is 
just totally made up, obviously. But they did change their name at some point upon becoming somewhat popular in Rio de Janeiro just to get what they described it as more pronounceable names. And I guess they were having issues with people like being able to ask for their music or... Yeah, didn't they have the last name Lima? That was their, yeah, the made-up name. Okay. Natalico and Interior Morea Lima. One interesting thing I found about the likely origin of where this whole idea comes from. So I found an ethnomusicologist who had done some research and kind of puts forward a convincing case for where Los Indios Tabajaras, these, their whole like persona and image comes from. During the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, there was a Paraguayan classical guitarist by the name of Augustine Barrios who started touring Brazil. He was really kind of blowing minds in this era. Uh, there was a famous music writer in the area who said that he described Barrios's uh, redeeming the guitar from the low esteem in which it was held in the world of music. He was someone who really brought classical guitar to a forefront at a time when guitar was seen as like something folk musicians play who could, don't understand sophisticated music. Barrios in 1929 was touring Brazil and becoming very popular and he also as he would describe it tried to get in touch with indigenous roots as 2019 would describe it we would say cultural appropriation <laughs> because he's in in no way indigenous um, in his ethnic makeup or his upbringing there's no like cultural link to him and the culture he was appropriating. And he became much, much more famous once he started dressing in ceremonial Indian garb, bare-chested on top. He would bring palm ferns on stage to kind of create like a jungle environment around him and kind of built this mythos of jungle Indian wandering out of the forest and just like playing at the level of a classical Western uh, performer. What the argument or the case being made is that this guy was doing this exact thing when these, this would have been like the formative years when these brothers would have most likely seen him or at minimum heard of him. And, I mean, they clearly just picked up his act. Mm -hmm. They what, what time period would have that been? That was late 1920s and early 1930s. Okay. And then in 1943, they were signed to RCA's Latin arm mm -hmm. and began recording records out there, but nothing was even available in America for 20 more years. Yeah, so when they had this hit, they had been going for commercially for about 20 years. Yeah, they had been performing all over Brazil. It was essentially a lounge act where they would dress up mm -hmm. in their ceremonial garb, and they were totally ripping off. Oh, so another, this, uh, the original man who used this idea, Barrios, he changed his name to Mangore when he was getting in <laughs> touch with his indigenous roots. And after a few years of performing like this and being Mangore, he like 
just kind of realize like the jig is up like I got to stop doing this this is not cool anymore but everybody just knew him as Moncor <laughs> <laughs> He lived the rest of his days with everyone calling him Moncore. <laughs> Probably like David Johansson is just Buster Poindexter. <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> well, I do. Two thirds of the hosts. Wow. I'm ignorant. Okay, well, hot, we'll... hot, hot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know that. He was a New York doll and then he was the hot, hot, hot guy. I want to play like probably my favorite song on this. A lot of these songs are either traditionals they had some original recordings they also went on they recorded like 30 albums once they were released in america and who knows how many before that in Mm -hmm. latin america that we don't have any record of yeah that's what i saw on the wikipedia page they have like their whole discography and i counted it was like almost 40 records after this one and this is already 20 years (laughs) into their career (laughs) it's crazy when one of the brothers passed away in the 80s the remaining brother was just like i'll just have my wife play and then they just kept performing yeah. until 2009 <laughs> awesome is that when the other brother ended up passing away in 2009 yeah he okay. he performed right until he kicked it so this is moonlight serenade mm. been rambling about their past what do you guys what do you guys think yeah do we this? like the record or not do you like this am i the only one who likes this peter go no i i like this record i listened to it earlier today it was about the first time that i had listened to it i, I think i listened to the the hit a, a few days ago when we first talked about doing this yeah and uh i really i think uh, the moment that I got really excited is when I expected it to be all instrumental because it had been all instrumental for several tracks, mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine, I don't know how many tracks. And then suddenly they started singing. Yeah. And what, is there just one song with vocals? There's two songs there's, that they sing on. Okay, there's two. But they're remarkably good singers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's what, what stood out to me is I was, you know, I thought, okay, they're just instrumental and it was enjoying it, but it was on and it was very much just in the background while I was doing other stuff. And then suddenly, I mean, some moments of this jumped out at me as kind of there. I don't feel like they're staying in one spot. They, they kind of drift here and there stylistically and pr- production wise. This is 1963. So I think there's some of the earliest kind of weird things happening here mm-hmm. and there. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed this record. I'd seen this around before when Jeremy said this was his pick, but I never actually listened to it. Um, and I read a little bit on Wikipedia about him before playing the record and saw they're from Brazil, so I was expecting kind of more of a Brazilian samba flavor to it because I collect a lot of that kind of music and I put it on and I was like, that is not what's happening here. And it kind of threw me at first, but I did really enjoy it, um, especially the like yeah recording techniques they would use like the little bit of like reverb and echo that's on the guitar and then aside from that their playing style is really cool yeah they're virtuosic it's like yeah but not in a flashy way at all like some of my favorite instrumentation is when you could tell someone could shred but they prefer to like serve the song and the melody and like there's like little flourishes here and there that are extremely technically proficient but it's all very listenable I, yeah, I love that about this record. Uh, we can say in this case, less is more. Yeah, Ingve yeah. Malmsteen is not here <laughs> to say otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I find myself playing this record over and over. I have like, you know, my favorite bands or whatever that I have their records, but like I don't play them as much as this record. I think there's an element of it kind of being. I mean, you might call it easy listening mm-hmm. where I can put it on and it can be in the background if I want it to and while I'm like doing something else, cleaning, who knows, maybe friends are over and we're talking and it sits in the background nicely being instrumental yeah, yeah. music. But there's like a level of sophistication and melody that if I want to just like focus in and listen on it, it will like reward you over and over um, I've listened to this record, who knows, like more than 20 times easily. And I feel like every, it's one of those records that every time there's like something there in it you didn't notice. Mm-hmm. That's just like, wow, that's great. Well, I guess, Jeremy, that brings us to the question of how did you discover this record and where? Oh, true, true. Yeah. And why? And, and why? why did you discover this record? <laughs> So this record I actually picked up when I lived in California and I was hanging out in the like hip part of town that they call North Park there and I was in this hip clothing resale store. Was that San Jose? No, San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. So I'm in this hip uh consignment that's the word consignment clothing shop Mm. where they're very like picky about having on trend uh clothes and in like the back corner of the store there's like three inexplicable boxes of vinyls (laughs) just like (laughs) vinyls cool now right yeah uh, but it was like, the section, the name of the section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these was, are coming back. <laughs> it was like, vinyl is cool now, right? Like a year before and clearly it either wasn't or these were the records that weren't cool and they just kind of shoved them into the back corner of the store yeah, yeah. and there was a sign um, and I started digging through and I'm looking at them and I pulled this one out for who knows why, but I start reading the back of it and it was just so ridiculous Mm -hmm. for like the same reasons that might have attracted people to listen to it originally it attracted me to listen to it because it was so ridiculous of a story and narrative around it and then i was floored when i actually heard it and it was like phenomenal music so the rca long con promotion scheme worked on you (laughs) 
They were going for the uh, ironic, unwoke uh, con. <laughs> that was the discussion in the office back in 63. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'll sell Draper. now and it'll sell in 60 years. <laughs> we know where, where society's going here. <laughs> the only other interesting factoid I kind of have on this is after releasing oh, I don't, like 67 more albums, they catch the ear of one Chet Atkins. Yeah, I, I saw that because well, that was one of my first impressions. When I listened to this, I was like, "Oh, this kind of sounds like a little bit more laid back Chet Atkins." Like, I wonder if they were influenced by him at all. And I saw like, "Oh, they worked with him. That's the perfect matchup." Yeah, it makes True. a lot of sense. Pianist Floyd Kramer. There is, I mean, maybe they shared influences. They come like from the same root kind of idea, but they didn't know each other. Chet just heard them and was like, this is sick. Like, yeah. I got to have these boys. Right. Um, <laughs> and they came and recorded a strange but okay uh, instrumental country <laughs> album kind of at a time when I think there was a lot of experimental country albums you might call it nashville sound being played out and mm-hmm. they wanted to kind of explore some more crevices what what year was their collaboration 71 seems close enough yeah, 75 75 yeah that makes a lot of sense there's a lot less strict rules on what country music could and should be and like well these outlaw country guys are making money let's just try everything and see what happens <laughs> yeah and i think at that point probably chet atkins was <laughs> pretty yeah uh, he was irrelevant. like 150 record deeps himself and could yeah, just do whatever yeah. he wanted yeah well do um, we want to listen to another selection from this record yeah let's hear some of the that vocal style that we mentioned earlier yeah let's i'll throw on a vocal selection before you Vem cá, não fujas tanto de mim Não sou tão mal, pra que fazer assim? O meu desejo é pedir a tua mão Oh Maria, eu quero, eu quero somente teu coração Oh Maria, eu quero, eu quero somente teu coração Todo mundo! Ai Maria, mais força! Right there with them singing that I don't know if we've really touched on the fact that they're Brazilian or they're from Brazil where Portuguese is the primary language that's spoken, but they seem to be singing in Spanish and a lot of the titles are in Spanish from what I can tell. RCA claims, so take it with a grain of salt, (laughs) that uh, they've, after touring Latin America and touring Europe, that they had learned to sing and speak in Italian, German, Greek, along with their adopted Portuguese and Spanish that they had learned, along with their native Tupi tongue that they knew initially. So, and that that was like part of the mystical, like selling point of this band was they had supposedly taken time off before recording this record to like woodshed and improve their skills on this like mystical guitar that they discovered in the jungle and this was the result 
Yeah, that was the claim. So they played around Brazil for a while and were putting out records, and they stopped for almost 10 years is what it seems like. Hmm. And the RCA claim is also that they went and studied guitar. They woodshedded real hard and uh, <laughs> came came to America, essentially, once they came back, and they hit it big. They were top 40 for a while there. Yeah, and you know, the perfect time for it. Yeah, it's just fascinating that, like we like said, they had that 20 years of a career and being signed to this label before the time was perfect for them to actually hit the radio with this like kind of interesting brand of music they were bringing around. And then recording for 20 plus more years yeah. after that. Both of them playing till the day they die. Yeah. I'm super curious to hear some of those later records now. Like this is the one you find pretty commonly. I don't know how. I can't imagine any of them are terribly valuable, but probably weren't pressed as much as the one that had the hit single on it so yeah definitely be keeping an eye out for this group in the future for their rarities Mm -hmm. do you have any you boys are crate diggers i uh dig in the crates myself a bit so for people who are like they're digging this vibe they're like you know i might go looking for a cool record i might go exploring can you like give them the how-to the life hack of Finding some good uh, dollar finds, 50 mm-hmm. cent finds. Well, I mean, we talked about on the first episode that it's all about just making a stack of stuff that looks interesting in any way. Just kind of trust your gut on that. That goes a longer way than just about anything will. And the more you start listening to records, I always recommend to like read all the liner notes of an album while you're listening to it and pay attention to the producer and the artist or even sometimes the instrumentation on songs that you particularly like and you'll kind of naturally start to pick up on themes that you'll look for in other records like if you ever are around like kind of more like veteran record digger um like you'll hear him be like oh like there's it's a 13 minute song and they've got a moog on it like well i've got to buy this you know (laughs) like like there's just, just weird things like that and then you start to pick up on like some of your favorite session musicians and like, Oh, well, like it's got this guitarist on it. And I've liked almost everything I've heard. I want to at least hear what he's doing on this record. And often that's one of the best ways to get into something. Yeah. And we were also earlier talking about how this is a, a record that was definitely like marketed to a specific class of people. And you typically will find this in like your grandparents record collection kind of thing. Like this is next to, all of the Johnny Mathis records and like, you know, Glenn Miller and that kind of thing. And I love looking through those record collections because most people will get like 10 records deep in that box and be like, oh, this, everything sucks. I'm not even bothering. Yeah. When you start like digging through these bargain finds, you find like this, there's like eight names of people that you just see over and over and over. Yeah. And yeah. Like, I know that's the way uh, you can recognize if you know if something was cut in Nashville, you recognize those session players. Like yeah. Bobby Ogden. Oh, that was cut in Nashville. It's probably a country record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite things to get into as a record collector is to find genres and like areas of music that aren't like hip and don't have high price tags and can be easily found for not a lot of money. Like once you find out like, oh, like this is something I'm excited about and no one else is and I can like get all of it without like losing a ton of money. It's super exciting. It's super gratifying. And just the whole record shopping experience just becomes so much more fun 
when you know that you can look for these real oddball things and find them in more places. Like, you know, everybody's looking for the standard classic rock titles and like everybody will come up to a record store. Someone like, do you have, you know, do you have Zeppelin? Do you have any black Sabbath records? You don't. Okay. Well, I'm leaving. And it's like, you know, I've, I've got those records too. They're fun, but there's so many other cool things to find. Yeah. Have you listened to trapeze? <laughs> no, I have not listened to trapeze. <laughs> I haven't really either. <laughs> Someone wants to send us a copy of Trapeze. Or Medusa. <laughs> uh, we need like a we need a PO box for people that send us like various trash <laughs> records they find. Yeah, I don't think they'll fit in the PO box. <laughs> oh, we'll we'll eventually bring in like a smash it or trash it section of this like user submitted dollar records. Oh, that would be interesting. We just got to get that fan base first. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> we need people to listen to this. Uh-huh. All right. Well. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been lovely. Yeah. What's the name of the show, Ben? The name of the show has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Who's Ben? Who's Ben?